Well, please have your, your Bible open at Matthew chapter 4. As we see Christ's ministry beginning and the light of the gospel dawning. Well, we'll look first of all from verse 12 to verse 17 as Christ's ministry begins. Now, it isn't obvious from the text, but there's actually a considerable gap between verses 11 and 12. Uh, Possibly, some think, maybe almost as much as a year. It's difficult to know exactly, but there's a gap there. And let me just explain this uh, for a moment let you know how we know that this is the case. Um, You'll see that in verse 12 of Matthew 4, Matthew says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. Well, we're going to go to John's Gospel for a little bit of help. And you might like to have a look at verse 22 of chapter 3 of John's Gospel. Uh, We read it earlier. Jesus and his disciples come into the land of Judea and there he remained and they were baptising. John also baptising near Anon because of the water that was there. And they came and were baptised for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So there are things occurring all the way through into John chapter 3 where Jesus is actually out and about doing things, meeting people, actually identifying disciples before John has been thrown into prison. Matthew begins at verse 12, after John had been thrown into prison. So there's a gap in Matthew's record. There's not, nothing wrong with that. That's just how Matthew's chosen to write. And that's just where he's chosen to pick up the story of Christ. But John provides some of the missing detail that is in that first part of Christ's public ministry. And it's probably helpful just to have a quick look at that. So in John's Gospel for a moment, if you have a look at the first chapter, at verse 29, in the following verses there, we have John the Baptist's first meeting with Jesus. It's there that John the Baptist is recorded saying these famous words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then from verse 35, Jesus has a second meeting with John the Baptist. And two of John the Baptist's disciples are there. And of those two disciples of John the Baptist, we're told this. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So when Jesus calls Simon, Peter and Andrew, Matthew chapter 4, that actually is not the first time they met. They actually were already disciples of Jesus at that point. More on that later. Still in John 1, at verse 43, Jesus returns to the region of Galilee. 
There he identifies two other men who are to be of the twelve disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. Then in chapter 2, there's that famous well-known account of Jesus at the wedding in Cana, where, if you remember, Jesus tells his mother, shh, my hour has not yet come. His full-blown public ministry at that point has not yet begun. It's not time, Jesus knows, not yet. But you see, Matthew has kind of fast-forwarded to that full-blown public ministry of Jesus and has left out this detail that John records. John records the beginning of signs that Jesus did which were pointing to his true identity. You'll see that in verse 11 of John chapter 2. His preaching ministry hasn't fully begun yet But those first disciples are beginning to see things in this Jesus. This man really could be the promised Messiah. The second half of John chapter 2, from verse 12, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And there he cleanses the temple precincts. And at verse 19, he speaks for the first time about his death and resurrection. The Jews say it's taken 46 years to build this temple and would you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, those years later, his disciples remembered this that Jesus had said and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And in Jerusalem, on that occasion, Jesus performed miracles. And many began to take notice of him and believe in him. In John chapter 3, we have that well-known encounter with Nicodemus. And for the first time, we find ourselves stunned by the words which come from Christ's mouth. There, of course, we have the famous John 3, 16 and 17. Speaking so clearly about the reason why he's come into this world. And in the second half of John chapter 3, Jesus and his disciples go back to John the Baptist. And we see in verses 23 and 24, the ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist overlapping for some time. Both are preaching repentance. Both are baptizing. Both men have disciples. But John the Baptist now knows that this is the time for his ministry to subside and for Christ's ministry to really bloom and blossom. John knows that it's the public ministry of Christ that's really going to make an impact amongst the people. And he gives this amazing affirmation that we read concerning Jesus as to who he is and what it is that he's going to do. And of course, he he closes there with those words about Christ. And here is John the Baptist, inspired by God to speak these words. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. 
But if you don't believe on him, the wrath of God will continue upon you. In chapter 4 of John's Gospel, that's taken up with the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And then at verse 43 of John chapter 4, we read of Jesus departing for Galilee. And it's about that time. It's hard to be precise about the dates, but it's at about that time that Matthew is talking about here in verse 12 of Matthew 4. Because he now says, John the Baptist has been put in prison. And now the ministry of Christ comes to the fore. And the teaching, the preaching, the miracle working of Jesus is about to make this huge impact upon the nation. And then we see that the town of Capernaum is where Jesus chooses to make what we might call his ministry headquarters for a time during his ministry in the region all around the Sea of Galilee, right up in the north. Capernaum's located on the northwestern shore of Galilee. It's ideally placed as a base for travelling around that area. It was probably something of a, a, a local administrative centre. It, it was a significant town in that part of uh, Galilee. And that's where Jesus will stay. And we see there from Matthew that it actually fulfills another prophecy taken from Isaiah chapter 9. The people described as being in darkness, described as being in the shadow of death, as are all men and women in their sins. But here is Christ, the light, the one who's come to cast out the darkness. Upon them the light has dawned. John the Baptist was never going to be that light. As amazing as his ministry was. But the light of the world has come. You may recall a few weeks ago I mentioned that the message of John the Baptist was the message of Jesus and was the message of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Their first recorded word as to what is the only fitting response to Christ and his gospel. Repent! You might remember I told you that Matthew records the very first word coming from the mouth of Christ in his public ministry as being this one. Repent. And there it is in verse 17. You can see it for yourself. Repent. Why? Well, what did John the Baptist say? He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But if you don't, you will not see life. The wrath of God remains upon you in your sins. Unless you repent and turn in saving faith to Christ. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If you believe in him, you will not be condemned. But if you don't believe, you're condemned already. This is the condemnation, said Jesus, that the light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness rather than light. And that fits really well alongside what we've read in verse 16 of Matthew 4. The people are in darkness, but the light has dawned. And Christ is that light. And the message of John, the message of Jesus, the message of the apostles, the message of the church today is simply this. You must repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or else you will forever perish in your sins. But through Christ, you may be saved. And Jesus Christ is the light that, sh that casts out the darkness. And Jesus Christ is the life where once there was death. The question is this, will you remain in your darkness? Will you remain in your death? Will you remain under God's wrath? Or will you step into the light? Will you repent of your sin? Will you believe in Christ? And will you receive from him life everlasting? That's the public ministry that Christ has come to bring. And then we see him choosing disciples, secondly. Disciples are chosen and called. Now we've seen already that this encounter that Jesus has with Simon, Peter and Andrew is not as abrupt and spontaneous as might at first seem to be the case. They've already met. Jesus knows them. And they know him. They're very aware of who Jesus is. But this is the occasion when Jesus calls them out to become two of his twelve. And next, probably maybe just a few, a few yards along the shoreline, two of their fishing community colleagues, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Well, those four fishermen added to Philip and Nathaniel, who we heard about before, well, there's half of the twelve already identified and called. And the first important lesson to note is this. These twelve disciples who Jesus would call to be his inner core, his inner circle of followers, and who, with the exception, of course, of Judas Iscariot, 
would be, they'd be appointed as apostles in the New Testament church. All of them are known to Christ. All of them are chosen by Christ. All of them are called by Christ. And whilst no other disciples would ever have the particular role and function that these men were given, all disciples of Jesus, because all Christians are disciples of the Lord Jesus, all Christians are likewise known to Christ, chosen by Christ, called by Christ. And you've been saved because Christ has known you and chosen you and loved you and called you and drawn you to himself. It's just a wonderful thing. Whenever you read the Bible, whenever you hear the Bible being preached, Christ is calling those whom he's chosen because he calls through the gospel, through his truth, through his word. And if you know that you've, you are one who's heard his call upon you, then pay attention to these four men who Jesus called on that day. Jesus, from this point, is going to ask of them a greater commitment than they as yet have given. They need to be taught, they need to be trained, they need to be equipped, they need to be prepared. And being a follower of Jesus in this evil world can be very costly indeed, and it was costly to these men. Luke provides us with a little bit of detail which some others don't. And as I say, it's, it's not always easy to pinpoint precise dates and times for some of these events in the Gospels. But at around this time, Jesus was preaching on one occasion on the side of Galilee and the crush was so great on the shore that um, he gets into Simon Peter's fishing boat and asks him just to take him a little off the shore so that Jesus can, can either stand or sit in it and use it as a pulpit and address the crowd on the shore of the lake. And when he's finished preaching, he asks Simon to take them out into the deeper water and go and let down your fishing nets. Well, Simon replies, there's absolutely no point doing that, Master. There aren't any fish in this part of the lake right now. We were out all last night and we didn't catch a single thing. But as he's saying this, Simon Peter, well, he thinks better of it. Nevertheless, he says, as it's you who's asking, and out they go. And down go the nets. And in no time at all, Simon Peter is shouting to all his other fishermen colleagues to bring the other boats because... He needs help lifting up this colossal haul of fish that's in danger of breaking the nets. And some noteworthy things are recorded by Luke. Now put yourself in Simon Peter's shoes or sandals. Well, actually, he's probably barefoot at the time, but you know what I mean. If you were Simon Peter bringing back to the shore one of the largest hauls of fish you've ever caught from waters which you were convinced were empty. How would you respond? What's going through your mind? Would, would you be busy working out how much all this fish is worth and what you're going to spend the money on? 
would you be wondering how you could persuade Jesus to stay on as a deckhand? Because, well, if he can produce this every time we go out onto the lake, hey, this is fishing. Not Simon Peter. Oh, no. Why, why wasn't Simon thinking any kind of thoughts remotely like that? Well, for this simple reason, it hits him right between the eyes, almost as hard as the stone that left David's sling that was heading for Goliath's forehead, that this man in his boat is God. Simon, right there and then in the boat, falls down on his knees before Jesus and says this, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You are God. I am a sinner. How can I possibly remain in the same place as you? That's what Simon thought. That's what Simon knew. That's what Simon said. And he hit, he hit the nail square on the head with all three points. You are God. I am a sinner. How can I remain in the same place as you? But what is it we've been seeing on these recent Sunday mornings? It's this. Jesus has come into the world so that he can stand in the place of sinners. And he's done that so that through him, God can reconcile sinners to himself. In Christ, with all of your sins and your guilt taken by him, and with all of his glorious righteousness imputed to you, you may stand in his presence. Wow. That's the gospel. How does that happen? How, how do you get from there to there? On your knees, in your sin, before the Saviour, heeding his call to repent and trusting him as your Lord. Have you done that? And note this, it was on that day, on the day that they were about to bank the biggest catch they'd ever made, it was on that day when their little fishing company had never had it so good that they forsook it all to follow Christ. They'd never had it so good. They left it all 
that they might follow him. Have you? That's in Luke chapter 5, if you want to read it for yourself later. And Jesus says to them in verse 19 of Matthew 4, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And then he calls James and John. And immediately, and immediately, Simon, and Pe- Simon Peter and Andrew leave their nets. James and John leave their boat with their dad still sat in it. And off they go after Christ. And the work of fishing for the souls of men and women goes on. We can't all just give up our livelihoods. We understand that. But will you still give it your all? And then thirdly, the word spreads. Verses 23 to 25. Christ's fame is spreading. The whole country is getting to hear of him. People are flocking to him from everywhere. And Matthew highlights three aspects of Christ's ministry. He mentions his teaching, his preaching, and healing the sick. Now for Jesus, his main location for teaching was in all of the local synagogues. And that would mainly occur on the Sabbath day. And we know that the apostles followed in his example. It's said both of Jesus and of the apostle Paul that on the Sabbath day they went to the synagogue, as was their custom. Now, of course, the main centre of worship for Jews was the temple in Jerusalem. That's where all of the nation's organised worship took place. That's where all of the thank offerings and the sacrifices were made and received. That's where all of the major feasts were celebrated. And of course, within the temple, only the priests and the Levites were allowed to serve there. And they followed all of those instructions that you read about in the Old Testament, uh, primarily through Exodus, Leviticus, and so on. But all across Israel, all across Palestine, and in fact, in any city where there was a substantial Jewish community, they would erect a local meeting house where they would attend each Sabbath day. And there they would meet for prayer. The scriptures would be read. And men would stand and teach. And these things did not have to be administered by the priesthood. And so each local synagogue appointed a man to be its leader. And each Sabbath day he would often invite different men to come up and they would read the scriptures. And then that man would give some thoughts about the scripture passage that's being read. And Jesus already is becoming a well-known and popular synagogue teacher. In fact, well, he's just leaving everyone else in his wake when it comes to the things that he can say about the Scriptures and the way he can explain the Bible and the way he can assist the people in their understanding. They've never heard things like they've heard from this man before. And so he's teaching them. But separate to that, Matthew also records that Jesus is preaching. And he certainly used to preach in the synagogue, but he'd also, of course, preach out in the open air amongst all the people. 
And of course, teaching and preaching are not mutually exclusive things. Teaching and preaching very often go together, but not always. Because of course you can teach, but not be preaching. Many go into the teaching profession, but what they do is teach. Because that's their job, to teach, to impart knowledge, to aid understanding. You can teach without preaching. It's not so easy to preach and not have preaching include teaching. Preaching and teaching tend to go together. But they're not quite the same, are they? Teaching primarily informs the mind. Teaching primarily is about knowledge. Preaching, well, preaching applies that knowledge and preaching demands a response. The end, of result, the end result of teaching is that people know and understand something. But the end result of preaching is that people, they have their will and their conscience moved so that they know they, there's something now that they ought to be doing. Preaching stirs people up. It doesn't always stir them up with the kind of response that you want, but it stirs people up. It should do. It should provoke a response in people. Now, teaching can... But preaching should. And Jesus taught in the synagogues explaining the word of God. But he preached as well. He said, look, you need to do something with this. You need to do something about this. There's a response that this requires from you. And of course, we've seen in verse 17, the primary response that he was demanding from people is you need to repent. You've got to repent. In Acts 15, we read of Paul of Barnabas teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. When Paul is in Rome, the Acts of the Apostles concludes in chapter 28 with Paul preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the last we hear of Paul then. Well, the very last thing we hear about him, what's he doing? He's teaching people about Christ and he's preaching to them the gospel that they might respond. And this was Christ's foremost work. He was, above all else, a teacher and preacher. As early as verse 2 of John chapter 3, the Pharisee Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and these are his opening words. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. It's already been recognised. People need to know the truth. People need to be confronted by the truth. They need to be rebuked and corrected by the truth. They need to be guided and directed by the truth. They need to be changed and converted by the truth. They need to be exhorted and encouraged by the truth. It needs to be taught and it needs to be preached. And this was the great priority of the Old Testament prophets and of John the Baptist and of Jesus and of his apostles And it must remain our great priority today, the teaching and preaching of the word of God and the gospel of Christ. Now alongside that, of course, there were the many many miracles that Jesus performed. And no doubt there were many people and they'd have put the miracle working number one on the list, not the teaching and preaching. But we note that Matthew puts it in that very specific order, teaching and preaching comes first and then the miracles of Christ. 
Many people purely probably just wanted the physical help that Jesus could give them, and for others, just the thrill of the spectacle of it all. Indeed, Jesus on occasions confronted people over that very, that very thing. You, you just want a, an even bigger thing. You just want even more bread than I was able to produce the other day. But these things do emphasise and endorse Christ's authority and that actually was the main reason for them. They endorse his authority and his identity. Now yes, he was also displaying compassion and mercy. That is undoubtedly true. But the crowds that were drawn because they wanted to see what he would do next, Jesus would use that opportunity to teach and preach. And as he ably pointed out when dealing with that paralytic man who was lowered down through the the roof of a house, he exerted his divine power and authority in healing the sick to demonstrate that the, the authority that he has in his teaching and even to forgive sins. I quoted Nicodemus before, but I only quoted the first half of what he said. He also says this, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And that was the purpose of the signs, chiefly for people to see that there's there's something about this man, there's an authority that this man has that no one else has. But actually, of course, we're told that even when he opened his mouth and taught, people said, no one else teaches like this man. We've never heard teaching like this. The whole point is that this man, Jesus, is the eternally begotten and beloved Son of the Father, filled with the Holy Spirit. And just as Nicodemus realised, we can't afford to ignore this man, neither can you. You really can't afford to ignore this man. He is the light of the world who casts out darkness. He who believes in him has everlasting life. Who else can you say that of? He who does not believe, well, for you, you'll never see life and the wrath of God will remain upon you till the day of judgment. But where there is now only darkness and death, there may be light and life. And Jesus Christ is that light and Jesus Christ is that life. And you through him may be saved, but you must repent of your sins and you must believe on him and then you will never perish and you will have life everlasting. You need it. The gospel teaches it. Jesus demands it. The light has dawned. The question is this. Has it yet dawned upon you? (coughs) And if it has, can others see it?